See, see, wisdom reminds us that there is, there is something of a wisdom in embracing the posture of humility that enables us to then rise back up from our mistakes, our points of failures, our disappointments, because in God's hands, what ends up happening is humility transforms us. It shapes us into buoyant people. And this idea of the wisdom of humility, it, it reminded me of a story uh, about a man named Samuel Brengel. And Samuel Brengel was a man who lived from 1816 to 1932. He was the first American commissioner of this organization we know very well, the Salvation Army. What we may not know is that the Salvation Army was founded in 1860 in England by a man named William Booth. He and his wife founded this organization. And Samuel Brengel was actually raised by his mother. He was taken to church constantly and was encouraged to embrace Jesus in his life. And at a very young age, he, he gave his life over to the Lord. But he also started to discover, and others started to let him know, that he had a, a, a very sharp intellect. And as he started to grow up and as he matured, he started to realize that he had an easy time with academics. And he also had an easy time with words. He was able to communicate rather well. And so during his undergraduate years, he realized that several opportunities started presenting to him. One was a track in a future in politics, in American politics. The other was potentially moving into a future in ministry. And in his case, he decided, as he was considering his options, he decided he felt impressed to pursue the ministry track. And so after gaining his undergrad, he ended up moving to Boston and going to a seminary out there and earning a graduate degree in theology. And upon his graduation, he was offered the position of leading the largest church in America for his day. And this young man filled with ambition and filled with drive and desire to do something with his life. He saw this opportunity presented to him. However, he had an experience right before that happened. He heard this man, William Booth, speak. And he was impressed by his conviction and passion. And he was impressed by everything that was going on in the Salvation Army. It was quite a movement that was happening. And so he decided to reject this opportunity. And he thought to himself, as he was considering his options, he, he felt that God was impressing on him to move to England and to make himself available to William Booth so he could learn from him. And so he did just that. He graduates seminary, he ends up making his way to England, and he presents himself to William Booth. And he, he comes with his credentials, he offers his services, and this very ambitious, enthusiastic young man ends up letting him know, my services, my gifts, my talents are at your disposal. I would love to help you in what's going on here. And what he ended up receiving from William Booth was a reaction he wasn't really expecting. William Booth, we know, actually felt that Samuel Brengel was somewhat of a threat. To the organization. He wasn't sure if Samuel Brengel would be able to be a part of the team. He felt, he said, that his ambition was too large for him. And so William Booth ended up taking him on, but he moved him to a different post. He moved him to the east side of London, and he moved him into a house with 18 other men. And this man who had an education above those that were living in the house and who had the ability to communicate effectively and well and who had drive and ambition was given one singular role. And the role he was asked to fulfill was to shine the boots of the 18 other men. Shine the boots of the 18 other men. He had moved across the world 
to offer his services, his talents, and his gifts, and he, his role that was going to make an enormous difference in the Salvation Army was to shine the boots of 18 other men. And as he starts to do this, he realizes after the first several weeks that William Booth wasn't joking. This was no uh, small task. This was actually his role. He was to shine the boots of these other men. And as he was doing that, he started considering what I believe many of us would quickly start considering, whether or not he had made a very, very big mistake. And as he's shining these boots, he starts to feel like he may have wasted his talents and his gifts. And he may have given up one of the largest opportunities in the United States to now fulfill a role, a menial role, a small role that made really, in his mind, very little difference. And so he starts to consider how he's supposed to move out of this situation, move back to the United States, maybe attain another opportunity and get back on the fast track. And as he's doing this, we're told that he ends up shining these shoes, and as he's shining these shoes, he's impressed with the fact that he, he remembers there was another man who put on a towel, who got a bowl, filled it with water, and also kneeled before 12 other men who had very dirty feet and ended up washing the feet of these 12 disciples. It was Jesus himself who had done this, and being impressed with this memory, he felt that he started to learn something started to grasp something of what William Booth was trying to teach him. Because what he, what he ended up being confronted was, was with his own selfish ambition. And all of a sudden, he started realizing that by shining these boots, he was in a very real way actually becoming much more in a place of solidarity with Jesus, who was willing to wash the feet of the disciples. And he ended up getting joy in shining these boots. And over time, he started to recognize something very, very important, that before he would ever be able to rise up, he needed to first kneel. And over time, he ended up gaining the trust of the 18 other men who knew he was much better equipped, who knew his credentials, who knew his skill. And he ended up gaining influence in this organization. William Booth ended up entrusting him with a little bit more responsibility. Over time, he ended up stepping into higher levels of leadership and being asked to take on a post in the United States. He ends up making his way back. And as he serves in this post, he ends up gaining a little bit more leadership, a little bit more influence. He ends up becoming the first American commissioner of the Salvation Army. And throughout the years, his skill of being able to communicate well ended up gaining him national notoriety. And he started being asked to speak to larger and larger gatherings throughout the United States. And he was being compelled to come and share the gospel in whatever way he could. And people started to really enjoy him. And towards the later part of his life, after having earned yet another degree, he was introduced one, one, uh, one of these Gatherings, he was introduced as the great Dr. Brengel. And Dr. Brengel ended up walking up, hearing those words, the great Dr. Brengel is with us. Can we give him a warm welcome? And everyone cheered and, and was waiting for him to share that he ended up stepping up to the podium a little bit less confident than he normally was, a little bit more less sure of himself. And after sharing that evening, he ended up writing these words that if we could hear them, they, they made an impact on me when I first heard them. The weight... Of, of what wisdom sounds like when it's spoken through humility. In his diary, that evening, he ended up saying, if I appear great in their eyes, the Lord is most graciously helping me to see how absolutely nothing I am without him. 
And he's helping me to keep little in my own eyes. He, he does use me. But I am so concerned that he uses me, that it is not me the work is done. See, the axe cannot boast of the trees it has cut down. It, it could do nothing but for the woodman. See, he, the woodman, made it. He, the woodman, sharpened it. And he, the woodman, used it. So the moment he, the woodman, woodsman, throws it aside, it becomes only old iron. Oh, that I may never lose sight of this. If we could hear these words. I remember being impressed by them the first time I read them because here's, here's what humility sounds like. The wisdom of humility sounded like. And, and here's what it did to me, and maybe you might be able to resonate, is that I used to think, and many of us might think, that humility actually means lowering ourselves and becoming somewhat of a doormat for other people to be able to take advantage of. That humility might mean not having any ambition at all and just passively stepping back into life and letting everything, opportunity, pass us by, not engaging with anything, just surrendering to the circumstances. Or that maybe humility might mean that we take an inferiority complex on. And if we could hear this, what, what he did not have was anything of the like. He knew he was being used. He said, oh, I know what's happening. I know God is using me. He knew who he was. But he also knew who he wasn't. He also knew who he wasn't. He had learned. He had learned the wisdom of humility. He had learned the lesson William Booth wanted him to learn. You, before we can rise up, you must learn to kneel. It's impactful for me. I, and the thing about it is, this is not altogether the easiest thing to grasp, to embrace. In fact, what I love about the scriptures, personally, is I love finding comfort in the flaws and weaknesses of the different people within them. Because I love how transparent the scriptures are. They don't hide the different things, the warts and the weaknesses and the points of brokenness that different people have within them. They're actually very real about them. And the, and the man we're going to read these words from, his name is Peter. He's one of Jesus' disciples. He was a man who struggled with the wisdom of humility in his younger years. And later in life, he ended up writing these words that we're going to share together to a younger group of believers. But before we read these words, I, I think it's important for us to see where Peter started. See, Peter, if we know anything about him, he was brash, he was strong, he was confident, and he would step into moments and he would capture the moment, many times saying things that were just brilliant. And he would understand what was going on. Other times he would say things that were not very wise. And I love that. I, I, I find, I identify with that. But he, he, he would step into this and he would expose his weaknesses. And one of those moments, the moment that actually, I believe, ended up altering his life for the remainder of his life was the night before Jesus would step into his moment of going on the cross. And Jesus was with the disciples in the upper room, and he was trying to share to them in the midst of this tension and fear. He was trying to let them know, I know what's going to happen. And he explains to them something. He says, listen, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to be struck. The shepherd is going to be struck. All of you are going to scatter. I'm going to be left alone. You're going to abandon me. I already know this is going to happen. I'm going to be alone in this, but I'm not alone because the Father is with me. But this is what's going to happen. And in the middle of that, Peter ends up hearing this, and he immediately, I personally love what he says. 
is he ends up stepping into that moment. And look at Matthew 26. I asked him to put this up there. It says that Peter broke in, interrupting Jesus. And he says, even if everyone else falls to pieces on account of you, I won't. So if everyone leaves, don't worry, Jesus, I got this. I'll stay by your side. I got you, okay? I'm your wingman, all right? I'm here with you, okay? If everyone else abandons, don't worry about it. I'm with you. And Jesus, hearing the magnitude of these words, but seeing the actual size of the man speaking them, he speaks into this moment. And I love the way Eugene Peterson, in this paraphrase, the message translation, says it. He says, Jesus says to him, and he says, don't be so sure, Peter. Don't be so confident. This very night, here's what's going to happen. Before the rooster crows up the dawn and awakens the new day, you will deny me three times. This is what's going to happen. This will be your moment of truth. You will see the measure of the man inside of you. But I love the loyalty. I love the passion, Peter, because all, almost completely ignoring everything Jesus had just said ends up doubling down. If at first it was simply not running away, now it would be a little bit more intense. So Peter ends up stepping into this moment, and he says he protested, and he says, listen, okay, fine. Even if I had to die with you, I will never deny you. Okay, so I, Jesus, I hear you saying we're going to leave you. Don't worry, I'm going to be here. You're saying I'm going to deny you three times. No, I will even die for you. And when they come, don't you worry. I will not abandon my post. In fact... I will never deny you. And these words of overconfidence, of passion and loyalty, unable to be backed up, but so filled with emotion, are words that end up capturing the rest of the 11. And they all end up jumping on board. And in the midst of this tension and this fear, following the lead of Peter, the one who is leading them, they end up, all the others said the same thing. Me, me too, Jesus. I, I also will die for you. And you, you go first, Peter, but we'll follow you. We'll, <laughs> we'll go ahead and follow your lead. You know, we're, we're right there with you. And, and we know exactly what happened, don't we? We know that just several hours later, as they moved, their, moved down to the Garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus was praying that soldiers came, arrested Jesus. They took him away, and everyone scattered except Peter. He stayed from afar. He watched. He followed. He moved closer to the house of the high priest, where they interrogated Jesus indoors. And he had a courtyard in which Peter made his way, warming himself by the fire. And a little girl, a little girl, ends up coming near to Peter, looking at him. And she says, Peter, aren't you, you're with, you're with Jesus of Nazareth. And the man who was so vocal about his willingness to die, who was vocal about his willingness to make sure he would never leave, never abandon, ended up stepping into the very first moment, intimidated by the pressure and the implications. I don't know the man. I don't know what you're talking about. Not recognizing what was occurring moved his way out towards the outer courtyard where there was a gate. And he's sitting there, and he's talking to different people, and other people, now an older man, ends up looking at Peter, recognizes him, and says, you have been with Jesus of Nazareth. I, I have seen you with Jesus. And he, now growing in his fear and his nervousness, ends up doubling a little bit more and captures it with an oath. I swear to you, I don't know the man. And then he moves into his third moment. 
And as he's discussing with other people, other people capture his accent, and they say to him, your accent betrays you. You, you have a northern accent, and we're down here in the south. You're from Galilee. We're here in Jerusalem. Obviously, you're with him. Why else would you be here? And Peter, almost capitalizing in the moment, ends up dropping back to an old way of behaving, fills his language with colorful words. Curses. I don't know the man. Unable to cash the check he had written. The rooster crows. And immediately as that happens, the words that Jesus had spoken to him, the accurate measurement of who he was starts to echo within him. And we know that Peter remembers Humbled, broken, recognizing the gravity of what had just happened, ends up running out, bitterly weeping. He had been humbled in an extraordinary fashion. And yet, the good news is that Jesus did something with Peter that he longs to do with any one of us who remain open to him. See, after Jesus resurrected, he ended up meeting Peter on the shores of Galilee and ended up restoring him to his position and ended up reaffirming him and saying to him, essentially, now that you understand yourself more accurately, now you can strengthen those around you. See, now will you follow me? Will you walk with me in this wisdom of humility? Will you do this? And he did. And he ended up moving into this moment and the rest of his days, he ended up remaining faithful because he had learned a so very important lesson that in order to remain in this way of life, there is a wisdom in embracing humility. And he ended up fulfilling his original desire. He ended up actually giving his life in a rather dramatic fashion because he learned the wisdom of humility. What did it it was impactful, but here's the thing. Many years later, about 30 years later, he ends up writing to this group of younger believers in this part of the world, Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And it's with this in mind that we, if we could hear the transformation of this man's life, we're going to walk through this passage together. If you open up your hand up, we'll hear what Peter is trying to tell them, what he's seeking to communicate. He says in verse 5, I want you to clothe yourselves, all of you. I want you to clothe yourselves like a garment with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Quoting Proverbs 3.34, by the way, the book of wisdom. He's saying, listen, listen to the wisdom of moving towards a place where God empowers us. I want you to do this. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 6, humble yourselves, therefore. In light of this, I want you to humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time, if we could hear this, the, at the proper time, he may exalt you. That we are to humble ourselves under his mighty hand. And in that way, we become transformed into people that are buoyant. And he decides when to lift us up. He decides how to raise us up. At the proper time, he, will, he may exalt you. What a great promise. He says, I want you to learn this way, this way of life, this new way of life. I want you to, verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Remember this. Learn this. Walk this way. Be sober-minded. Be, be clear in the way you think. Be watchful, aware of your surroundings, your situations, your adversary. 
For the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom to devour. He doesn't even explain it or unpack it. He simply assumes and desires the readers to understand that our soul does have an, a point of an enemy that is dangerous to our well-being. He says, I want you to resist him. How do we do that? Being established in your trust, in your faith, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood, those who call on Jesus throughout the world. And maybe these words, maybe in such a week where all we need to do is turn on the news and hear and see how other people who call on Jesus throughout the world may actually be suffering severe degrees of persecution. Peter's words might resound all the more. Remember, you are not alone in this. Same kinds of suffering are being experienced all over the world. He says, listen, after, in verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, after you have endured a degree of discomfort, what is the promise? That the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself will restore you, will confirm you, will strengthen and establish you. That if we humble ourselves, and we embrace the wisdom of humility, something happens. God ends up doing some radical things in our lives. Can we hear the wisdom, the weight of the words of the more mature, sober, measured, wise, older Peter? I was thinking, as we consider how we might apply this in our own lives, I was considering just Several thoughts I would have us ponder. Firstly, I think Peter reminds us of a couple things. He reminds us that humility, humility gives us a couple of reminders. This wisdom of humility, it invites us to do something. Number one, it invites us, it reminds us to cast our burden on the one who cares for us. To cast our burdens on the one who cares for us. And I personally love this because you know what he's not saying? He's not saying, listen, I want you to forget about your troubles. I want you that once you decide to sign on with Jesus and you start trying to follow God, I want you to just pretend like your other troubles are just not even existent. Just forget about them. Just, just forget about them. Just focus on something else. Think positively and, and you'll find your way. He doesn't say that. He does not say that. I, I personally love that. He doesn't say, listen, I want you to pretend. I want you to deny that these even exist. And what I need you to do is the way we are to follow God, the way we are to live wisely is we put on a tough exterior. And then, and when, even though things are not going very well, what we are to do is we are to fake it as long as possible until it becomes real. He doesn't say that. I love that. And I especially love that what he doesn't say is that this walk with God, this walk with Jesus, is a walk in which we are now supposed to bear our own burdens. And that if we feel weak or wounded, or if we feel somewhat like we need some attention in certain areas of our lives, that we are just to simply tough it out and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and figure this out. He doesn't say that. Which I don't know about you, but I think all those things are things that I immediately gravitate to, don't we? Don't we seek to immediately, when we have mistakes, failures, or disappointments, the way we actually 
may initially react is one of trying to forget like it ever even happened. Let's just forget about it. Let's just move on. Or maybe we try to deny it and try to sweep it under the rag. Or perhaps we try to think to ourselves, maybe this is just the burden I'm supposed to bear, and I'll just walk this out. But that is not what he's saying. He's saying there's a new way of life. There's freedom in learning to cast our burdens on him. Which, by the way, that word cast is the very same word that was used when Jesus was about to ride the donkey into Jerusalem. And right before he mounted the donkey, we're told that that word cast was used when the different people ended up taking their coats off and casting them onto the donkey. The donkey ended up bearing the weight of that coat. Now, I don't know about you, but my baggage is a little heavier than a coat. But that is what Jesus invites us to do, to cast our burdens onto him. It was several weeks ago that we ended up going... Uh, Backpacking, myself and three other people, and uh, we ended up going to this beautiful lake 14 miles out from the trailhead, and uh, I've shared before of the joy of being able to go out and enjoy this time, but this time we had one member of our group that was a little bit, uh, was struggling with the weight he was carrying, the distance, the terrain, the pace we were setting, and was very vocal about his uh, struggles, much to our enjoyment, but as, as we were walking at one, one of these hills that we climbed, one of these mountains that we ended up switchbacking through. We got to the very top, and he was the last person to get there. We were waiting for him, and when he got there, it was just one of those things that he very honestly, transparently sat there. He turned around, he sat down, and just gasped. He said, what was that? Why was that? And that very moment, the person who was leading our group decided that was the moment to get back up and keep going. And, <laughs> and so he complained a little bit more. We made our way around the corner. There was a lake there where we stopped, and we had a little bit of a rest period. And we ended up making our way. He continued to vocalize his disagreement with the terrain and the weight and the pace and everything else in life. And when we got there, <laughs> he ended up enjoying together the camaraderie and the environment and the freedom that being out in the wilderness presents. And at the end of our five days together, we made our way back. He was so refreshed, so thrilled that he, he was now strengthened again. He wanted to do all 14 miles at once. And we had to really fight with him, convince him, maybe that's not the best idea. And he was adamant and finally relented. And we broke it up into two trips, one with several miles and then the rest with the most of the miles. And on the second day, when we were making our way back to the car. He was again vocalizing his disagreements and the complaints of his body. And, and we got to this one point where we were close to the parking lot. We knew it, he did not. And as we were walking, we were hiking with our baggage a little bit lighter, but it's still a little too heavy. It, we had to make off to, move off to the side because these horses started walking through. And there was three horses that came through the path we were on. Two of them were being ridden by two men. And then the middle horse was filled with different things like food and a tent and backpack and different points of luggage that were just hanging over the horse. And we watched this happen, and they walked by, and then we get back onto the path, and the person who's a little bit more vocal starts asking the person who's leading this trip, who also happens to lead our church, he's asking him, <laughs> what, what, what was that? What, what was that about? And he explains to him, oh, you know, that was... Um, some people, they end up hiring horses, they put their bags on them, and they have the horses carry the, the weight all the way out to the campsite so that they can have a nice, easy walk to the lake. And, and putting two and two together, he starts, you could almost see the anger, and he starts to ask, well, why didn't we do that? And 
and we laughed just like you did, and he didn't. He was serious. Because he knew that that would have been very different. And we might listen to that. We might listen, and we might hear, and we might realize that, wait, there are certain things we should carry. There are certain things we are supposed to take out. There, there is a degree that we are supposed to carry. But can you hear this? There are certain things that we are not supposed to carry. That God has provided for us a way to unload the burdens that will, honestly, they will crush us. Now, I think of a degree maybe of shame that might say we are in some way, shape, or form defective. And the only way to silence that is to behave a certain way, to act a certain way, to measure up to certain certain standard. And yet all the while, what God might be reminding us of is that Jesus stepped into that place, onto that cross, because we cannot bear that weight. And the invitation, the wisdom of humility, is learning how to say, God, you have paid for I can't fix it. You bear that weight. I thank you for it. Can you hear how light our soul becomes when we learn the discipline, the acquired discipline of casting our burdens on him? Can you hear how wisdom ends up transforming us to buoyant people? Secondly, humility. It doesn't just remind us of this great promise we have to cast our burdens, it also reminds us to have an honest assessment of our strengths and our weaknesses. Because he said to him, he, he says to these younger believers, listen, if there's something that I want you to understand is to be sober and watchful. In other words, don't be so cavalier with certain things. But the wisdom of humility is stepping into a place of being sober about our strengths. Now, that in this day and age is something that I think we are trained to do. We must be aware of our capacities and our strengths, our skills, our, uh, the things that we can offer to our employers, to different people around us. This is something in some ways that we are overqualified in. And perhaps maybe God is asking us to be a little bit more assertive of those things. But I would, I would venture to guess that actually the area where God may want to impress on us is to learn how to be honest about our weaknesses. I would say that's actually the more difficult area for some of us. I think of perhaps maybe different things that we may feed our mind through what we watch, through what we read, what we listen to, that in the past actually did not affect us quite. But now that we are seeking to live this life with God out, something is impressing on us that actually those things are dangerous to the well-being of our soul. They are informing certain value systems. They are informing a certain way of living. They actually don't help our faith. They undermine it. And humility might look like saying, I don't think I can handle that. I may actually need to acknowledge a weakness in this area. And Humility, the wisdom of humility might look like being a little bit more intentional about setting up boundaries and different rails that would keep us on track, different points of defense. It might look like that, or it might look like recognizing that there are certain environments, much like the one Peter found himself in, that if, if we are in these environments, maybe we can't, we can't change them, but perhaps how we move through them might change. Jesus was trying to say to him, don't be so sure, don't be so cavalier, don't be so overconfident. Be sober, be vigilant, he says later in his years. This is what I have learned. Be sober, be vigilant, be aware. 
of what is actually going on. There are forces larger than us. God may invite us, be humble, be small. Let's not overestimate our strength. Wisdom keeps us there on the path that leads to life. See, he's trying to educate them. He's trying to tell them, don't do what I did. And thirdly, I think wisdom reminds us of a very important reality. That wisdom, the, the wisdom of humility reminds us to what? To move to a place of compassion toward others. Because when we make mistakes and when we have points of failure and when we feel discouraged, what inevitably ends up happening, if we're not careful, is that the initial, the gravitational pull is to turn inward. And in our place of turning inward, pity starts to come and it ends up weighing us down. And what happens is we end up feeling a lot of isolation in our struggles and in our challenges, and that actually doesn't help us. It weighs us down. And inevitably, if we don't move out of that place, what happens is that we could end up feeling a little hopeless, a little defeated. We might end up feeling that maybe, maybe, maybe I'm the exception. And all the while, what, what is Peter saying to them? Remember, remember, in that place, humility calls us to remember that there are others who are suffering, maybe the same or a little bit more than us all over the world. And what happens is we end up putting our eyes off of ourselves and onto others. And it's not to say we ignore our issues. That's why we cast our burdens. That's why we are a little bit more honest about our strengths and our weaknesses. But as we do this, the wisdom of humility calls us to recognize that there are others who may be hurting around us and to start setting our eyes on those whom we may be asked to have some compassion towards. I, I love this quote from Timothy Keller. It's one of those quotes that has stuck with me through through the years. He's a pastor in the East Coast. He wrote this about humility. He said, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. Yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. See, it undermines both swaggering and sniveling. And I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself, nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. What happens is that as we become more aware of the people around us that God may want us to encourage and strengthen, much like Jesus spoke to Peter, now that you understand yourself a little bit more, now that your soul may have a little bit of a limp, now you can strengthen your brethren. Now will you follow me and become one who encourages those around you. And as God may start to lift us up. Can you hear the wisdom of being able to become tethered to others that God not just lifts us up, but ends up lifting them as well? It's the very lesson William Booth was trying to teach Samuel Brengle. Before you can lift up and rise up, you must kneel. Embrace the wisdom of humility. May God help us. May God help us entrust ourselves to him, and may he have his way with us. May he, in due time, exalt us and those around us. In a moment, we're going to receive our time of giving and sharing a closing song. It's meant to awaken us to what God may want to say to us, but uh, I'd love to pray, and then we'll share this together. God, 
I thank you that you are um, so aware of the things we carry, of the wounds, of the different points of pressure in our lives. But you are more than aware. You invite us to trust you and to learn the discipline of casting our cares on you. I pray that you would help us do that. I pray that you would give us the soberness, awareness, the humility of understanding the limits of who we are. And I ask, God, that you would empower us to become compassionate toward those around us, that when you lift us up, many more may be strengthened as well. May you have your way with us. May you give us wisdom for living. We pray for your blessing in Jesus' name.